inner peace is the ultimate source of happiness. Because your view is insane. Many paths to what you call God. Atheism itself is a kind of fantasy world. And the God of the universe wants to live in you. God hates you. 11 people have been confirmed dead. Let's stop the killing and choose peace. Blow them all away in the name of the Lord. That was the only form of Christianity I knew existed, and I knew I didn't like it. So uh, we're in this series, and um, we're entitling this message, for obvious reasons, You Are Not the Tree. Self-explanatory. And uh, that was a joke, folks. Uh, I want to read from Colossians chapter 2. Where Paul says this, Colossians chapter 2. My goal, he says, is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. The mystery of God is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I'm telling you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Though I'm absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Pray with me here for a moment. Abba Father, I thank you for the freedom of your spirit in this place. I thank you for everybody in this auditorium and those who will be listening through podcast. And uh, Lord, we pray that this message uh, would be infused with your authority to inform us and transform us, convict us or liberate us, uh, enlighten us. Lord, whatever you see needs to be accomplished in our life regarding this topic or anything else, uh, let it be done, Lord. Let your word not return void, but that's about your spirit, not me. So we surrender this over to you and open up our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. So Paul's writing to this group of Christians at Colossae, the city of Colossae. That's why it's called Colossians. And they were in an environment where there was this ancient movement, this religious philosophical movement that came to be known as Gnosticism. Uh, that comes from the word, uh, Greek word gnosis, which is the word for, for knowledge. And they're called that because these folks were into uh, really exploring. They thought they were, they were seeking for an experience that would give them insight and knowledge into the spiritual realm, into God and angels and all sorts of other things. They're really spiritually curious folks. Always wanted to delve deeper into things and have this experience. And they thought that's what saved them. They were very eclectic. That means they, they borrowed from everybody. They would find elements of truth in, in all these different religions and philosophies, including Christianity. And they would incorporate some Christian stuff into their system, always looking for the deeper meaning of things and to experience the deeper truth of things. Because they thought that's what would liberate them. Uh, they had an obsession with angels, which they generally saw as emanations from God. And... Um, thought that these angels couldn't be of help in, uh, in your own spiritual evolution as they opened up insight into the spiritual realm and things like that. Uh, and so they, they would include Christ as one of these high angels, but he wasn't Lord of Lords or King of Kings. And apparently they were exercising some influence on these Colossians, which is why Paul, throughout the book of Colossians, he's saying things like, all of the treasures of wisdom, all of the mystery is found in Christ. Don't let anyone deceive you into thinking that there's something else out there that you're supposed to be pursuing alongside of Christ. It's all found in Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. In fact, a few verses after the ones I just read, um, he says this about Jesus. He says, 
that the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of the deity, dwelt in him in bodily form. Everything that makes God God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So everything you can know about God, everything you need to know about God, is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Don't be deceived into thinking that you need to get some extra stuff by talking to this angel or pursuing that thing or having this experience. It's all found in Jesus. Now that is a message I think that is absolutely urgent for us to really internalize in this day and age. Uh, In our pluralistic context, with all these voices pulling at us, all these competing truth claims, all these things that, you know, could be very, very uh, distracting from our singular focus on Christ, how we need to always be reminded that it's all found in Jesus. Let's all say that. It's all found in Jesus. It's all found in Jesus. It's especially important these days because there is a movement abroad that is very much like the ancient Gnostic movement. It has a lot of similarities to ancient Gnosticism. Uh, it's sometimes called the new spirituality today or the uh, Eastern spirituality. Or some still call it the new age movement. And it, it's, it's very diverse. It's, it's no one, one single movement. It incorporates a lot of differences. But there's also some real common denominators here. And this is, uh, we see it everywhere in our culture. It, 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 its origins go back to the 19th century. There's a group of thinkers like Waldo Emerson and, and, and uh, Henry David Thoreau uh, and others who founded this movement called Transcendentalism. And they were the first ones to really bring Eastern philosophy over to the West. And they introduced the, into America and into Europe the, um, uh, the Upanishads and the Vedas and the Tao Te Ching and other Eastern holy books and began to really promote these ideas. But it didn't really grab the imagination of the masses in the West until the late 60s and early 70s. And uh, that's where it really began to take root in this culture. One author describes it as uh, that period of time from the late 60s, early 70s, that's when the West turned East and began to seek religious fulfillment in Eastern concepts, in Eastern philosophy and things like that. And now it's it's all over the place. It's all over the place. I want to share an experience I had with this, uh, which will explain something about my passion about this. Um, Some of you who are... 50 and older, can remember, perhaps, uh, the late 60s and early 70s. Any folks around at that time? It was, it, it was a crazy, crazy time. It was insane. At least it was in my life. Uh, there was this explosion of interest in the East. Uh, Eastern music, Eastern philosophy. Uh, it was just all over the place. The Beatles had taken on uh, Maharisha, the, the founder of TM, uh, and... Um, uh, he was sort of their guru, and they began to play a sitar and, and dress in Eastern garb, and a lot of other bands began to follow suit. So there's this real fascination with Eastern stuff. And that was combined, some of you may recall, with uh, psychedelic drugs, hallucinogenic drugs. Uh, they were seen as kind of the quick way to attain enlightenment. This is the time when Timothy Leary, the famous Harvard psychologist, was, was promoting this gospel of LSD and mescaline and mushroom and, and saying that these things are, are expand your consciousness. They enlighten you. And a lot of us around at this time really believe this. Uh, and so you have in, in rock music and in culture this weird combination of Eastern philosophy, Eastern practices with psychedelic drugs, hallucinogenic drugs. Now, I, I was a uh, very spiritually hungry teenager at this time. Um, always searching. I had a real sense of the futility of life and nothing made sense and life felt empty. And so I was always searching. I, I didn't believe in God or, or anything, but I felt there must be something that makes sense out of this weird thing that we're in. Um, and something that would fulfill my life, a higher consciousness or something like that. 
or this oneness that the, the Eastern folks were always talking about. And um, this is a previous life now. Uh, we were doing a lot of drugs to try to experience that. I mean, some folks were just doing it for kicks. But I always was, was doing it to try to discover this, the, the lost chord that the Moody Blues were singing about, you know? Uh, something that would just make sense out of this life. So I was in a rock band at this time, and, and so we would do a lot, spend a lot of time getting high and talking about Easter philosophy and uh, listening to the Moody Blues and the Beatles and bands like that. We had a guy who uh, was related to someone in the band. He was a really smart dude. He went to MIT. But when he came back, he was also a real stoner. And so when he came back, he would share with us uh, readings from the, the, the Upanishads or the Bhagavad Gita or some other Eastern book. And uh, we we're always searching for this enlightenment. And I would read those books on my own, usually while high, uh, trying to find this, this mystical oneness with the universe. It's just where we were at, at the time. Now, there's one night where I thought I experienced this. Finally found it. Uh, I think I've shared this before, but I think it bears repeating. Um, it was at a Christmas party, 1973. And uh, I had never taken mescaline before. And they told me that if it's your first time, only take half a hit or half of one pill. So I took three hits. Uh, never one for moderation. I thought, and I really wanted to discover the oneness of everything, all right? So I was, I was sincere. So I took three. Now, um, we're sitting on the table, and our MIT guru is talking about the yin and the yang, out of the I Ching, and um, all of a sudden, I look across the room, and I see this Christmas tree, and the Christmas tree begins to melt into the floor, all those colors, and it flows slowly over to me, takes over the table, and it beca- it, 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 I become the tree. And then I melt into the ceiling, and it, 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 it forms a circle. Huh? It's just incredible. And then it began to envelop the entire room with a blur of colors and swirls, and in that moment... I was the yin and yang. I had tapped into the higher consciousness of the universe. I was the higher consciousness of the universe. Everything seemed so clear, and I understood everything. Uh, everything made sense to me. It was just this euphoric, euphoric moment. I mean, I was just so full of joy in this moment. It's like, it was just incredible. I, I had found the lost chord that the Moody Blues were singing about. You know, I was Lucy in the sky of diamonds, all right? Living in a God of the Vida under a beautiful purple haze. I had taken the magical mystery tour into strawberry fields forever and followed the white rabbit down to find the walrus singing cuckoo to good vibrations. It was all there. You know, I just, all it comes to the experience. And if you don't know what I just said, it's because you're not over 50. <laughs> uh, it, it was just this <laughs> I am the walrus. Lo ha, lo ha, everybody. I am the Eggman. Crazy stuff going on back there. Yeah, yeah, crazy stuff. So I, you know, I was an evangelist even back then, apparently, because I had to tell everybody. And so I stood up on this table and announced to everybody that I was the Christmas tree. And um, I was a little irritated when, when they laughed. Uh, but then I realized, well, you know, we're all one. We're all one, so I'm really just laughing at myself, so it's all cool. Uh, somehow I made it back home, but don't remember how, but... I spent the rest of the night in a state of absolute euphoria, and I was writing. I just wrote um, about 20 pages of stuff, and it felt like divine revelation. In fact, I felt like I wasn't writing it. It was writing me. I was just flowing. I was the paper. I was the pen, and truth was just sort of flowing here. And I thought, this is what, what the authors of the Bhagavad Gita and Vedas and these other books must have experienced. And it just felt like just such revelation. At some point, I fell asleep, woke up the next afternoon. The euphoria was totally gone. Uh, in fact, my brain felt like it was eggs being fried on a frying pan. It was just sizzling. 
Um, and I read what I wrote. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's, to say I was disappointed is an understatement. I, I had a vague, vague memory of standing up on a table and I felt so foolish. And I, I read... I read this thing, and it made absolutely no sense. It was just pure gibberish. It was like, um, I am the all-knowing alter eye of ethereal forms of effervescent consciousness and tree in me perceiving being. It, what? It made no sense whatsoever. And um, I wish I would have kept it. Uh, I, I threw it away in anger, but, but uh, it, it, it was just garbage. And I didn't believe in God or the devil or anything, but it struck me that this is deceptive. Because that experience was so euphoric. I can remember it like it was yesterday. It was so euphoric. It, I felt so certain. I understood all things. It, it was so, it felt so positive. And yet if that was nothing but garbage, well, then that's deception. In fact, it felt evil to me. And that was, frankly, the last time I ever did drugs. Uh, this is sinister. There's something evil about this. Uh, in fact, it wasn't too long after that that I began to read the Bible. Uh, still searching. I, I felt if there's a truth out there, this isn't it, and this isn't the way to go about it. And so I started reading the Bible. I did it in secret because I didn't want my dad to find out because he would laugh. So I hid it under the bed. But before I'd go to sleep, I would you know, just, just read, read some. Didn't understand most of it, but, but I, I started reading it. And within six months, I found myself in this little, little Pentecostal church, started my life to Jesus. And now I had another euphoric experience, but this one was real because it wasn't induced by mescaline. It was induced by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I'm up here talking to you about Jesus rather than the yin and yang. All right? So story has a good ending. Lost a couple brain cells on the way, but uh, all, all's good. I, I, I share that to, to uh, you know, convey something of the passion I have about the deceptive power of this stuff. Now, I want to make really clear that I am not at all suggesting that everything about Eastern philosophy and certainly everything about Eastern culture is bad or wrong, let alone evil. I'm not suggesting that at all. Uh, some Christians have that kind of perspective. Some, some Christians virtually identify Christianity with Western culture. And so when they come upon something that's not part of Western culture and strikes them as strange, well, it must be the devil. It must be demons. There's a lady that I knew who um, got just chastised, reamed out by her Christian friends because she sought help in Eastern medicine. Uh, she'd been in a car wreck and had chronic back pain, and Western science and medicine had done everything they could for her, uh, but she still was in chronic pain, and the only remaining solution was to get on uh, meds, but she didn't want to get strung out on oxycotton, and so she looked into alternative medicine. And she began to practice deep breathing meditation where you just concentrate on your breathing 15 minutes to a half hour a day. And she got healing hands therapy and acupuncture. And she says it really helped, helped her deal with the pain and, and alleviate the pain. But her friends all said, no, that is just demons deceiving you. Now, here's the thing. Just because something is not part of Western science doesn't make it evil. <laughs> it's not like we have a corner on all truth. And what, after all, is so demonic about paying attention to your breathing for 15 minutes a day? There's actually an increasing number of scientific studies that suggest that that is actually very, very good for you. But uh, what happens is, is, is some folks just react. If, if they're not familiar with it, it's not part of Western culture, it must be demonic. And, and we've got to be careful not to uh, you know, just throw it all out. It's important to make a distinction between a, a practice, whether or not it's beneficial, and the theory about why it's beneficial. Make that distinction. Like there are practitioners of acupuncture who believe that the reason it works is because they're realigning your chakra. 
which are, they, they believe are your seven centers of, of energy, and they get, they get mixed up sometimes, so acupuncture helps realign those. Now, science would have a very different explanation for why it works if they thought it worked. Um, but see, why something works is very different, a very different question than, 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 than whether it works. And so you can benefit from this stuff, perhaps. Um, that doesn't mean you agree with the theory of the practitioner about why it works, or about science why it works. You don't even have to have any idea why it works. You just want it to work. In fact, that's, that, on, that, on that score, Eastern and Western medicine have a lot in common. Well, Shelley and I were really surprised when we first started, started uh, getting our son diagnosed as having autism that uh, scientists, scientists don't know why most psychiatric medications work. They don't know why. They just know that they do. And so you don't need to have a theory in order to benefit from something. Uh, those are two very independent things. In fact, I'll go out on a limb and I'll confess this. Uh, I've got some friends who are, have recently got into these oils, uh, and the, these healing oils. And they claim that if you put an oil on your stomach while you're having stomach ache or cramps, it takes that away, or your headache, or all sorts of ailments. If you breathe it in while you're getting a cold, it, take, it, it knocks the cold out or the flu. Or, I mean, for every ailment, they've got an oil. Now, last Sunday, as I was preaching here, I started to get a sore throat. I just noticed it a little bit. And throughout the day, it got worse and worse and worse. And by nighttime, I couldn't swallow. And I thought, oh, great, I have strep throat, and it's going to knock me out for a week. No, I have a friend who says that there's this oil, that if you just dip the Q-tip in the oil and put it at the back of your throat, it takes the, the pain away, and in fact, it heals you. Uh, I'm very skeptical about this. I suspect that's probably the placebo effect, which is that if you believe something that's going to work, it's, it's more likely to work. But, you know, I, look, I got a sore throat, I can't swallow, what have I got to lose? So I try it. Get a little of this oil, and I put it in the back of my throat. It tasted terrible, gagged a lot because I have a terrible gag reflex. But I forced it back there, and within 15 minutes, I could swallow. There was no pain whatsoever, and it never came back. Now, look, I don't know why it works. For all I know, the manufacturers of these oils, I don't know this, but they may believe that there's little spirits in each one of these oils, and the spirits get in your body and, and do the fixing. That's what they may believe. If they believe that, I think they're wrong. And maybe it is the placebo effect. I don't care. All I know is I didn't have a sore throat anymore. So, so there's a world of difference between whether something works and, and, and why it works. And, and, and make that distinction. And be careful not to throw the beneficial baby out with the theoretical bathwater. Right? So some of this can be, can, can be beneficial. Final thing I'll say about that is this. You have to follow your own conscience. I, I spoke with a young lady a couple weeks ago, and uh, she was confessing to me um, that she had come under a lot of conviction because she was involved in yoga. And uh, it wasn't, there's was no spiritual dimension to this yoga, uh, no philosophical dimension to it. It was just a physical exercise. But she felt like God was telling her not to do this, and, and, and she'd gone to a couple of classes anyways. So she came under conviction. And that's fine. If God tells you not to do something, don't do it. Uh, but don't turn your conscience into everyone's conscience and make a rule about this. Uh, we have to just follow our own conscience on these things. And what's, what's okay for some may not be okay for others. We just got to give each other space, all right? Okay, now, so I'm not, throw, I'm not at all, I don't want to just paint with broad strokes about, against Eastern philosophy or Eastern culture. There's a lot of beautiful things there and maybe some helpful things. At the same time, there is some aspects of its philosophy and practice that we have to be very careful about. And I could say a lot about this, but for, for time's sake, I'm going to keep it to three points, all right? Three, three basic points. First is this. Uh, it, it's generally called pantheism. A, a core aspect of, of Eastern uh, thought is that everything is a manifestation of God. 
Everything reflects God. Everything is God, ultimately. Uh, the belief is that, that um, insofar as you think that you're not God, in fact, you think you're not other people, you think you're not the Christmas tree, insofar as you think that, you're caught in illusion, like a dream. They call it Maya. Uh, the world of distinct things is Maya. The world of plurality is Maya. The real truth is that everything is simply God. And um, to the degree that you are uh, awake, to the degree that you are enlightened, you're free from Maya and you begin to experience the oneness of all things. That's kind of the goal. That's what I was trying to do that Christmas, that Christmas, at the Christmas party, just taking a shortcut. You know, folks in the East spend their whole life meditating to try to have this. We want to get it by dropping a pill. That's so American, right? <laughs> I'll take the short route, you know, the easier, easier route and have some fun along the way. But uh, th- that's the goal of everything, to escape Maya, this illusion. And to wake up to your true self. And so books that are influenced by uh, this, this kind of thinking, they'll talk a lot about expanding your consciousness. Uh, they'll have a lot of tips on, on how to uh, actualize your own inner divinity and, and, and come to awareness of that and to realize your full potentiality and things of that sort. Uh, there's, there's one aspect of this Eastern thought that gets played out in, in uh, the West uh, with a real a kind of aggressive environmentalism which I think is real positive. And I wish more Christians were passionate about the environment. But in this Eastern thought, uh, what, what motivates them is, is a, a belief that the earth is itself a divine being um, and that we are its consciousness. And, and so we're the consciousness of the earth. They call it Gaia. I'm sure some of you have heard that, the whole Gaia movement. And so Gaia is this divine being, and we are its consciousness, and we're always evolving. And so we take care of the earth because it's part of us. We're like taking care of our own, our, our own body. And I'm glad that they're, that they're, you know, avid environmentalists, uh, but the, the philosophy behind it is something that, that concerns us. This whole pantheistic view well, it should concern us because it's fundamentally contrary to what Scripture teaches. Uh, the Bible tells us that God created the world. All things were created by God. He spoke them in existence. He created the world, and the world is good, but the world is not God. And God created the world, and he sustains the world, and he's everywhere, and he's in everything, sustaining everything, but... But everything's not God. It's distinct from him. And God created people, and God created people in his image, and he loves these people, but people are not God. And God did all that because he wants to share his eternal being with us, invite us into the, the perfect love and joy and peace of his, of his own triune fellowship for all eternity. But, he, but never do we become God. We, we always remain distinct from God, and the world is distinct from God. So this isn't Maya here. This is reality. We really are distinct from one another and from God and from the Christmas tree. Okay? That's not an illusion. In fact, the only reason why, in the biblical view, the only reason why God can invite us in to share in his love is because we're not God. We're distinct from God. In fact, in the Eastern view, the highest reality isn't love. It's oneness. And love requires two parties. Love is a relationship between two. And so if the two aren't really two, then love can't be the ultimate reality. And this is, I think, the most fundamental difference between the uh, Eastern view and the biblical view. Uh, according to Scripture, in fact, Eckhart Tolle says, says this. Uh, he's that guru that Oprah Winfrey was so excited about a couple of years ago. In his book, New Heavens and New Earth, he says, those who think that love is the ultimate reality, he's referring to Christians here, are not yet enlightened. Because in his view... Um, uh, love is a yearning to be one with another, not yet having realized that you've never been separated from the other. So it's a yearning to try to experience oneness. 
And so it's a stepping stone to the ultimate thing. It's not itself ultimate. So love is part of maya because distinctness is part of maya and you need distinctness to have love. Whereas in the Christian view, love is the ultimate reality because God's the ultimate reality and God is love. And he creates the world that's distinct from himself precisely to share in that love and it's distinct so that he can share in that love. If it was just part of himself, it wouldn't be a loving relationship. You see, and, and in my opinion, it's far more beautiful that we're not God. In the Eastern view, it's like, oh, you know, it's supposed to build your ego up. You are the I am. You are God. Whereas in, in, I think it's more beautiful that we're distinct from God because only because we're distinct from God can we be loved by God. And only because we're distinct from God can we be transformed by that love and begin to reciprocate that love. And only because we're, we're, we're distinct from God can we be invited in to share in the joy in the bliss and, and peace of that God-thought eternity. And only because we're distinct from God can we be awed by the revelation of his beautiful, loving character on Calvary. All that disappears. It's all just part of Maya. If the ultimate truth is that there's only one thing, namely God, Brahman, or whatever you want to call it, far more beautiful that there's love, that there's relationship. And so, folks, always know that you are loved by God. You're created by God. You're in the image of God. You have unsurpassable worth. But you are not God, and you're not the Christmas tree. Right? Distinctness is, is part of the reality that God created. So that's about pantheism. The second thing I want us to, be, uh, to pay attention to is a fundamental feature of Eastern thought, as well as a lot of ancient religions, which is also finding a resurgence today, people getting fascinated with, with uh, ancient uh, religious practices, druids and things like that. And it has to do with the interacting with spirits. Interacting with spirits. You find in Eastern thought, uh, and this is true of ancient Gnosticism, and this is true of of uh, a lot of ancient religions, that there's a, a lot of attention paid to, to, to spirit guides. And these are just invisible agents that are believed to be more highly evolved than we are, and they are available for, uh, to help us in our spiritual journey. And these, these spiritual guides can be uh, angels, or they can be called gods, or they can be called ancestral spirits, or sometimes they're just departed loved ones who come back to help you. Um, or in some circles, there are power animals that you, you contact through having shamanic journeys in your imagination. You contact your power animal who's there to give you wisdom and things like that. But there's, there's the, the spiritual guides in one form or another that are there to help us. And so there's an explosion of books out there now uh, that teach you how to contact your spirit or your guardian angel or your power animal, how to get in contact with that. And there's a whole industry now of people who position themselves as sort of the go-betweens of the physical plane and the spiritual plane, and, and to help you uh, get in contact with these spirit guides. So you've got mediums and psychics and channelers and folks like John Edwards on, on the show Crossing Over, and, and they position themselves as sort of the high priest of this kind of new spirituality. They're there to help you get contact with the other side. Now, from a biblical perspective, it is true. I mean, there's, a, there's a, a true insight here that the world is populated by spirit agents. That's true. The Western secular view that thinks that we're the only form of consciousness here on the earth or anywhere else in the universe, uh, that's, just, that's not the biblical view. It's not the view of, of most religions throughout history. There's been, always been an awareness that there's a society of spirit agents that surround us and that what goes on in that spiritual realm can affect us for better or for worse. And so we are surrounded by demons and angels and, and rulers and authorities and principalities and powers and probably a host of others that we're simply not told about in Scripture. That is true. But here's the thing. This is the fun, most fundamental difference between the Christian perspective and this Eastern perspective. From, a, from the Christian perspective, we are only to have contact with one agent on that side, and his name is Jesus. 
This is what we're supposed to talk to. That's why Paul is so emphatic. Don't go looking for guidance and wisdom and enlightenment outside of Christ. Uh, it's all found in Christ. Everything you can know, everything you need to know, all the treasures of wisdom are found in the person of Jesus Christ. So don't be deceived into thinking that there's something else that you need outside of Christ. In fact, nowhere in the Bible is there any precedent for a human being initiating contact with some other agent, whether it's a deceased loved one or an angel or anything, on the, in, in the spiritual realm. There's no precedent for it. In fact, the Bible is uniformly against, God weighs down heavily on this, against trying to get any kind of knowledge that's beyond our, our natural ken, to get divine knowledge about the goings-on in the spiritual realm. That's called divination. And so whether it's through contacting... Uh, Deceased loved one or an angel or going through a medium or a channeler or a psychic or through tarot cards or a Ouija board or palm reading or tea leaf reading or what have you. Um, it's all forbidden. It's all a form of divination. In fact, that is the first sin of the Bible, right? Eve wanted to steal forbidden wisdom. That tree, it can give you insight. It can give you knowledge. Ooh, get curious. And, uh, and throughout the Bible, that's something that's simply forbidden. The only one we're to have contact with, with, the only one we're to be dialed into is Jesus Christ. Uh, it, it, when we go outside of the parameters that God set for us in terms of what we should know, uh, we are dealing with fire. It's very, very dangerous. It's like calling up someone, a stranger on the telephone, and you don't know who's going to pick up on the other line. You're dialing up into that realm, and you don't have a clue what you're going to get. And just because... The other person on the other line claims to be your mom and sounds like your mom and maybe even has information that only your mom could know doesn't mean that you're talking to your mom. You know, we have to realize that the kingdom of darkness specializes in deception. That's what they do. They're specialists in that. They deceive. And uh, you know, Satan, though he's pure evil, he can manifest himself as an angel of light, pure beauty. And so we have to take our bearings and our practices, not from what we experience or what someone claims or, or what someone reports, but rather uh, what he tells us. And all that we can know and should know and need to know is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we need to trust him for everything else. Uh, it, 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 if, if we don't know about it, well, then we're not supposed to know about it, so let it go. And, and this takes discipline. In an age of pluralism, we have all these fascinating reports of people who are, who are you know, claiming to be talking regularly with their deceased loved one and getting insights and all this kind of stuff. It can, it can rouse up your curiosity, which is why Paul affirms the Colossians for being so disciplined and so firm in their faith in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. So this is very dangerous. Now, I don't know enough about the spiritual realm, and neither do you, to claim that every encounter that someone has with an apparition or a ghost or whatever, that is demonic, because there's good angels out there too. So I'm not going to just dismiss all of that. But I will say with confidence that it's very dangerous to go outside, beyond, or around Christ and to dabble in anything else. I encourage us all to abstain from all of that stuff and to keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen? Okay, so interacting with spirits. The third thing I want to talk about is reincarnation. And I'm sure all of you know what that is. We have some idea about it. The idea is that in, in, in the East, the idea is that every individual soul, which itself is a form of illusion because you're not really distinct, but we, we're playing this game of Maya, and that uh, you go through billions of incarnations, billions of times of being reborn on this earth. And the goal is to make progress each time, and the ultimate goal is to realize that you've been God all along. 
And so from single-celled organisms to human beings and even ascended masters, there's this evolutionary chain, and you go through this process of being reincarnated. And the, the, the ultimate goal is to lose your individuality, to realize that you've never been an individual distinct thing at all. You've always been God, just sort of dreaming that you were not. That, that's sort of the... So, so reincarnation in the East is a negative concept. You don't want to keep on getting reincarnated. The goal is to escape this cycle of reincarnation because they see this world as full of suffering. And it, it, it's, it's not a positive thing. So you want to escape it and realize that you are yourself Brahmin. It's a negative thing. Now, when it got incorporated into the West, something happened. Because see, whereas in the East, they have kind of a more negative view of life and individuality is a, is a negative thing you want to escape. In the West, we love our individuality. And we're very this-worldly focused. So reincarnation became good news. It's bad news in the East. It's good news over here. We get to be reincarnated. And all the folks over in the East are scratching their heads saying, what is it with these idiot Westerns? They don't even understand the concept. But now it's, it's, uh, it's grabbed hold of folks, and it's becoming increasingly popular. I saw a, a, a poll reported in the New York Times that said that uh, reported 25% of Americans now believe in reincarnation, including a good percentage of Christians. And that's sort of seen as the good news. And then with this explosion of popularity in um, uh, reincarnation, another industry has developed. I mean, Americans are nothing if not entrepreneurial. We're, we're very much into therapy, and so we combine therapy with this reincarnation, and guess what we get? Past life regression therapy, and it's all over the place. I don't know if you've, if you've seen this or not, but there's folks who claim that they can put you into a trance of some sort, and then you go back into past lives uh, to figure out why you're so screwed up in this one. <laughs> uh, uh, and so I, I, there's one account I read of this lady who had a lifelong irrational fear of horses. And in her past life regression, she, in her therapy, she discovered that it was because at the age of 10, she was knocked off a horse and got killed uh, in Ireland in the 13th century. And that gives her insight into why she's afraid. Of, I don't know if it helps her get over that fear, but at least now she knows why she's uh, afraid of these horses. So it's, it's, it's all over the place. A lot of Hollywood people are, are being involved in this. Now, now, from a biblical perspective, and again, I could say a lot about this, but... The Bible tells us, Hebrews 9, that it is, uh, people are destined once to die, and then after that, to judgment. Look at that word once. We die once. Uh, this, there's only one time we're on this earth. Now, that judgment, I don't think it's just a matter of appearing before the judge, and he goes heaven or hell or something like that. Uh, as I put all the text together, and this is my perspective, but I, I see it as coming into the presence of God's undiluted love, and everything that is not completed here gets completed in a process there. And everything that is compatible with God gets refined, the, the precious stone and gold and silver. And everything that's not compatible, the wood, hay, and stubble in our life gets burned up. And so it's a, it, it's a process. But the important point is that this life is a one-time thing. This life is a one-time thing. Um, it means we don't have billions of lives to, to go through. We've got one here. And that changes the perspective quite Significantly. This isn't just a theoretical difference now. There's practical consequences to this. So like in, in the East, um, uh, the, the concept of reincarnation is, uh, one aspect of it is the law of karma. And the law of karma is simply the law that what goes around comes around, you get what you deserved, you'll ultimately reap what you sow. And so your particular incarnation, this go-round, is designed to pay back wrongs done in a previous incarnation and or to teach you what you need to learn to go to be reincarnated in a higher form the next time around. Everything that happens to you is specifically chosen by you for that very purpose. Now, that idea not only undermines the work of the cross where Jesus paid for our sins, we don't pay for our own sins, 
But it also undermines compassion, if you think about it. What role could compassion possibly have? Look, if you're born mentally or physically challenged, well, that's on you. That's what you chose. You had that coming. Born in abject poverty, starvation. Well, you know, too bad, but that is what you need to make progress in the spiritual life. Born into an abusive home where your cousin rapes you as a kid for a couple of years. Hey, you had that coming. You know, it was, it was what you chose. It's what you needed. The universe is always trying to teach us things. See, it just undermines compassion completely. And India, frankly, is still suffering from some of this, even though they got rid of the caste system finally. But it, it, it still suffers from this, this philosophy. And here we are trying to incorporate it into the West. I think we do better without it. And notice how, how fundamentally this contradicts uh, the ministry of Jesus. Because Jesus, his whole ministry is spent uh, ministering to people who are afflicted and have infirmities and deformities and all of that. And never once does he suggest that this was their own fault or they had this coming. Never once does he suggest that it was God's fault, uh, that God was somehow punishing them. In every instance, he treats them as victims in this cosmic war. And he manifests the love of God and the compassion of God by healing them and ministering to them. And he is the model that we are to be following. Uh, and, and reincarnation in the whole law of karma completely undermines this. The other thing that concerns me about this is, is this. Uh, the way it gets spun here in the West is that reincarnation is a wonderful opportunity because you get infinite number of chances at stuff. And that completely takes away the urgency of the now. You don't have to tr- work hard at getting it right now. You've got, you know, however number of lives you need uh, to get it right. And so there's no urgency to this life. Whereas from a biblical perspective, it's destined to people once to die, and after that, the judgment, once. And that gives a kind of urgency here. Now, I don't think God's done with us when we die, but there is an urgency to getting things right now. This is the one life we've got. So this is the time to get right with God. This is the time to surrender to God. This is the time to, to uh, uh, pursue a deep relationship with Him and to get the shackles off of our life and to get liberated. This is the time uh, to, set, to set things right. You don't have billions of lifetimes. You don't have billions of days. You may not even have one more day. So this is the moment right here and now. There's an intensity to now. And it's a beautiful thing because it gives our life significance, but it's also kind of awe-inspiring because the only reality we've got is right now. So now is the time to be aware of God, to surrender to God, to receive His love, be transformed by His love. Now is the time to do the work of God. We don't have infinite lifetimes. Now is the time to manifest His love and feed the poor and take care of the homeless and, 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 and uh, invite the folks in. Now is the time to spread the good news. This is the only moment we've got. So folks, we don't have this infinite lifetime. Uh, this reincarnation thing, I encourage us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And this is an idea that is just totally foreign to all of Scripture. Some people try to wring reincarnation out of a couple of verses, but it's a futile effort. It's just not there. Now, if, if, you, if you find yourself in a relationship with somebody who's being influenced by these ideas, let me just say a word about this. Um, I encourage you, and we, we've done this throughout this series, remember Acts 17. Paul's method in Acts 17, where he saw all these idols, and they grieved him. As a Jewish person, this would have grieved him deeply. But he doesn't go after all the wrong idols he sees there. He finds an opening, and the opening is found in this one statue they had to an unknown God. And rather than railing at all of the ones that he disagreed with, he says, I want to tell you about the unknown God, the God that you admit you don't know. He built on a positive there. First, he affirms him of being very religious. He says, you guys are really religious. I congratulate you on that. Let me talk about this. And then he finds a way, an avenue to talk about Jesus Christ. I encourage us when we're dialoguing with folks influenced by this idea or any of the ideas that we've been talking about in this series, look for something positive to build on rather than going after the negative. Um, 
Now, these folks, they're, they're, they're spiritually hungry. That's a positive thing. They're searching for stuff. That's a positive thing. Affirm that. Um, they, they are aware of the reality of spirits. That's a positive thing. That's true. We can agree with that. Um, and, and so find whatever you can. And, and for some, Jesus plays a role in their life. Uh, they see him as an ascended master or something like that. And he, though he's not king of kings and lord of lords, build on that. That's something to build on. So look for positive stuff to build on. Uh, don't shoot after all the stuff you disagree with. Now, if, if folks want to talk about different beliefs, don't pretend. You know, don't say, I'm not going to talk about that. I only want to talk about the positive. No, talk about it. Uh, you want to talk about reincarnation or interacting with spirits? Talk about it. But always remember, whatever you do, do in love. First Corinthians 16, 14, do it in love. Communicating love for this person is more important than trying to convince them that you're right. Do it while well, listening. Do it politely. Hear them out. Uh, be gentle with all this. And always be looking for an opportunity to share why you believe Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and Savior of the world. Always be trying to... Because that, in the end, is, is all that matters. Who cares? If, if they don't have Jesus, who cares what they think about reincarnation or interacting with spirits or anything else? Uh, this is the, 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 that relationship is the all-important thing. So always be stirring it towards that end. So as the worship team comes up here, I'll just recap this. Um, folks, you're loved by God. You're cherished by God. You're made in God's image. You have unsurpassable worth, but you are not God. And you are not the Christmas tree. And when it comes to the spiritual realm, uh, there's a lot of funky stuff going on there right now. I encourage us to be disciplined in keeping our eyes singularly focused on Jesus Christ. Uh, all we need to know, all we can know, is found in the one who, in whom all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All you need to know about God, yourself, others, the purpose of life is found in him. Keep your eyes fixed on him. And then finally realize that now is the only now we've got. The future is unreality and it's not promised to us. The past is past. This is the moment. And it's particularly good to remember this as we now go into a time of worship. Because worship is all about being in the now, in the present. Giving God all of this moment. And we worship God with all of our lives, but there's a special role that's played when we come together and sing. And so I encourage us now to make a decision. Worship is about ascribing worth to God. And we're only doing that fully when we are worshiping him as though this moment was the first time we ever did it and the last time we'll ever do it. All that we have is to be poured into now. So can we make this choice as we go into the time of worship to pour all of our mind, all of our heart, all of our voice, all of our body into praising our King of Kings and Lord of Lords in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom. We'll start by taking up an offering so the ushers come forward and then at the appropriate time we'll be asked to stand. Father, we thank you for this now. The beauty of this now, the wonder of this now, the urgency of this now. And we want to offer it to you and offer up our entire lives to you. And this offering is an expression of that. Lord, help us to bring our stewarding of your resources into alignment with our profession of faith that you're the most important thing in our life. And then, Lord, fill this place with your spirit as we focus on you and only on you, ascribing worth to your name in Jesus' name. Amen.